Amen. Good morning. Grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 3. So if you've got a copy of the scripture, please turn or tap your way to Philippians chapter 3. We want you to be seeing that what we're saying comes from scripture. We want you to be testing the things that we're saying by scripture. That's our standard of truth at Hope Church, and we've got all kinds of reasons we can give for it. We'd love to uh, invite you to kind of investigate with us. But here's what I want us to think about today. The next text, the next sort of part of this book, this guy Paul that wrote Philippians, it's a letter that he wrote, this guy Paul that wrote it, is concerned with the life of the Christian. So here, let me say it this way. There's a comedy writer named Mindy Kaling. She did this show called The Mindy Project. She was a, an actress named Kelly on the American version of The Office, if you ever watched that one, Kelly Kapoor. And Kelly, Mindy Kaling, uh, wrote a book, and she's actually a really thoughtful writer, and I, I don't know if I've read it or Rachel read it or whatever, but in it, she just talked about happily ever after. She's somebody who thinks really seriously about uh, rom-coms. Well, wouldn't that be a wonderful life? <laughs> you are like a rom-com scholar, uh, but that, she's a writer. I mean, it's her living, and she's a smart person. She thinks a lot about it. And the rom-com in particular was something that meant a lot to her. And so she's thought through it. And she just says, the rom-com always ends with happily ever after. It always ends where most people's life starts. How is it happily and how is it happily ever after? How does that happen? And as she's like aging and, and looking at her life, she's asking, how do you get that? I want that. And honestly, as a pastor of a church, I have that feeling a lot of, okay, evangelism. Let's compare Christianity with other worldviews. Let's, let's look at the reasons we believe and help you inform your mind so that you have reason to believe and then hopefully draw your heart out and you can Really meet the love of Christ. Evangelism. Become a Christian. Come to know the Lord. Amen. Okay. But usually after that happens, you got like 40 years. How do we like happily ever after you? How do we keep you? How do we keep you connected to him? How do you happily ever after in your relationship with him? There's going to be a dead resurrection heaven moment where happily ever after is assured because there's no more sin. There's no more shame. There's no more crying, no more pain. That's heaven. Wonderful. But what about today? Are you as Christians living with what this guy Paul is writing about constantly? Joy, 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 joy. Are you living with joy? He's concerned, I'm concerned, you should be concerned to have in your life that kind of joy and have it growing. Have it ever after. How do we do that? Well, in this text today, I think he gives us two big answers. He gives us two things to say where we say, okay, if I want to really have the joy that Christ promised and I want to keep it, so it's not just becoming a Christian, it's going back to the gospel and continuing to apply it, but how do I keep it? If, if I'm going to keep it, there's something that I need to let go of 
that I don't want to let go of. And there's something I got to take hold of that I don't want to take hold of. And they're both in this text. And my argument today, the reason that I'm going to try and compel you to do this is not so that you'll go through the difficulty of it, but so that you'll happily ever after. Part of the reason you're not happy, part of the reason there's not a lot of joy, and maybe there is, I hope there is, but if there's not, or if it's lacking, or if it's waning, I got two reasons. There's something that you don't want to let go of that you're going to have to let go of. And there's something you don't want to grab hold of that you've got to grab a hold of. I'm sorry, that was my, my non-English coming out. Grab hold of <laughs> that you've got to grab that you don't want to grasp. Let's go through it. In Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He is saying, again, the main point of this whole letter. Joy! Rejoice in the Lord. He said it several times. He's saying it again. He's going to keep saying it. Hello, if you come to Hope Church and you come regularly, there are certain themes you're going to hear again and again and again. Do you know why? Because you need to hear them again and again and again. It's safe for you to hear it again and again and again. There's a hole in the back of your head, in the back of your heart, and we pour this stuff in and it just sort of tumbles out. And then you come in next week and you remind me and I remind you. Okay? He said, it's safe. Joy, joy, joy. How do we get this joy? Well, the first part, that thing that we've got that we've got to let go of is right here. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Right there, he gives you an A and a B. You can do it this way or this way. And he's going to now make the argument for why to do it one way instead of the other. You can, and when he's talking here about dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh, if you don't know a lot about Scripture, your mind can kind of go to some crazy places about what he's describing. Dogs. Oh, okay. But I have a dog. Oh, my gosh. And then evildoers. Well, you know, whatever that is, the joker or something. And then people who mutilate the flesh. Huh, cannibals. You know, you don't know what he's talking about. Well, throughout the New Testament, there's this constant pull. The people who are Jewish who become Christians, they had this constant pull towards going back to the law of Moses. The law of Moses is good. It's not bad, but it's also been fulfilled through Christ. And there's a lot to that, more than I've got time for. I went way too long last, I didn't go long, but I had to cut a bunch out last service. So I don't have time for that for sure. But it's kind of wrapped up in this concept of circumcision. But the reason being that that was the sign of the covenant. So it's not that circumcision was the biggest deal in the world. It was that it was a sign of all this other stuff that put together was a big deal. And it was very difficult for people to make that move. Why? I'll tell you. But it's kind of wrapped up in that concept of circumcision. So Paul is kind of making fun of these people or drawing out some of the the wickedness of what they're doing by calling them mutilators of flesh, people who are constantly trying to get them. No, no, I don't want to go that far. People who who are advocating for circumcision. That's how we'll say that. So 
He says, no, not that. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And here he's saying, if you want to do that, I'm an example of why you shouldn't. Of why, if you did and went as far as you possibly could, it still wouldn't work. Here's what he's saying. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, when you're supposed to be, of the people of Israel. When you're born on the eighth day, that's when it's supposed to happen. He was circumcised as a Jewish person of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He could even trace his lineage back to Benjamin, back to Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, all the way back to the beginning. As to the law or the way in which you were supposed to execute what God gave through Moses, he was a Pharisee. He was at the top of the most zealous of the zealous when it came to the law. The Pharisees wrote extra laws on top of the law of Moses just to make sure that they were keeping the law of Moses. As to zeal, I was a, he was a persecutor of the church. He didn't just hate. He hated as, as extreme as you can. He wasn't just zealous for the law. He was zealous to the point that when others came and said the law was fulfilled and must somehow now be lived differently, he persecuted those people to the point of death. He was a persecutor of Christianity. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, there's a lot going on, and I want to talk with you about it. But here's, I think, the application point, and it's what we're going to stick with. He's saying that we used to think that we could stand before God as righteous because of what we did or because of how well we kept the law of Moses. But now we know what the law was always telling us, which is that we need something else. We can't stand before God because of what we've done and have Him accept us. We have to stand before God by the mercy of God. And that's what Jesus came and preached. That's why the Pharisees hated Him so much. It's because He was saying that everything they were doing wasn't enough. They were profoundly insulted when he said that their good works were not enough. That the only way to stand before God is by the righteousness of Christ, as he'll talk about in verse 9 in a second. But what I want you to see is why it's so hard for us as believers to let go of this concept that we're good. Here's what I mean. As Christians, you have to say that you're not good to become a Christian. You have to say, I am a sinner. David said it up here. We are broken people. By that he means we are sinful people. And if we're going to receive God's forgiveness, we need to be asking forgiveness for something. That's, that's what we're talking about. We say, I am a sinner and I need, Father, your forgiveness of me. So we put our trust in Jesus and in his righteousness on our behalf. What he has done, his perfect life becomes accounted to us and our sin gets put on him. That's why, though he was perfect, he died a sinner's death. Becoming a Christian is believing that. It's accepting that. And yet, as soon as you become a Christian, what happens? You immediately start evaluating yourself before God and before his people based on what you've done. 
You say, yeah, I became a Christian because, you know, I can't justify myself before the Lord. I need Jesus to save and forgive me. Now, though, my confidence when I stand before these people, well, now, it's, again, it's based totally on me. It's based on how well I dress. It's based on how well I talk the talk. It's based on the frequency with which I attend on Sunday mornings or attend these community groups. It's based on my giving. It's based on my service. It's based on my, it's based on my, it's based on my. You start putting, again, clothes on yourself based on what you do. Your confidence in why you're going to be accepted before God, but definitely before His people, comes back to what you do. It's hard to let go of that. Because it is like your clothing. There's another slogan we talk about at Hope Church. It's fully known, fully loved. What we mean by that is that God knows you fully and he still chooses to love you with a steadfast love. God's people are terrible, but we're slowly changing and gaining the capacity to love one another. Not because of who you are, but despite of who you are. To love you even though we know you. That means that you are exposing who you are, not literally, figuratively, very clear, but I think the analogy is helpful. The nightmare many of us have is that I was naked. You wake up or, you know, you're in the nightmare, the nightmare begins and you're just in class and you're writing or whatever and then you realize like, I didn't put on any clothes, I'm totally naked, which has never happened to anybody ever, but that's the nightmare. What's it representative of? Again, I'm not Freud, but, but the concept of being exposed, of people knowing who you are, I think there's a shame component there. And so to come into this place, to come and stand before other believers, you want to put on yourself good works. You don't want to come in here messy. You want to come in here buttoned up. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that a Christian community is a community that accepts one another. It doesn't mean that we rubber stamp all the things that God hates that you love and we say, no, don't worry about it, enjoy. No, of course not. We're going to fight sin together. But it means that we do know that you sin in that way, that you know about me that I sin in all of these ways, and yet I'm still loved. There's a humility that comes with taking off my filthy works, taking them off and putting on instead Christ, walking these halls and speaking to you and saying, you don't have to like me because of the way I present myself. I'm going to trust in you to like me because we have Christ. That's totally different. I constantly feel, forgive me God, this need to impress you. And I'm, I'm great in about 30 seconds. And that's why on Sunday mornings, I love a 30-second moment. How you doing? Good? How was your week? You'll say something. I'm going to try and say something funny based on what you said. Ha <laughs> ha! Slap you on the elbow. Next person. Why? Because I can do 30 seconds. If we go any longer than that, though, whoo, exposed. That's not what Christianity is, though. And part of your lack of joy is that you've got a tight grasp on who you are based on what you do. And you've got to let that go. 
You got to let that go by being known by other people in the church. You got to let that go by knowing that it's not, it, you can't have that instead of Jesus. It's not going to work. You need Jesus instead. You got to let go and really accept the humility of being a child rather than the false pride of, I'm this important person. No, you're not. One of the shorter Psalms, if you just want to memorize a whole scrap, chapter of Scripture, Psalm 131, it talks about the way that we are viewed by God. We're not viewed as impressive. We're viewed as a child. Oh, Lord, my heart's not lifted up. My eyes aren't raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Boy, that is the opposite of all of us constantly. Yeah, you don't want to do work, so you don't want to involve yourself in the important matters of the church, but you definitely want to be the kind of person that we would trust with. You want to exude the kind of confidence of somebody who can definitely deal with the high and mighty things. But he's saying, no, that his eyes aren't raised too high. He doesn't occupy himself with too, things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed, I've quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's the whole psalm. You can memorize that today. He's saying that you really can live your life with your eyes on Him rather than your eyes on yourself. A child shouldn't be anxious. And yet we live with so much anxiety. It's stealing your joy. Let go of who you are based on what you do. And instead, instead, take hold of what you really need. Now you're saying to yourself, well, this sounds really great. We're going to let go of my pride. Yeah, that's going to hurt. That's going to involve like drinking some humility. Bitter in the mouth, sweet in the stomach. You know, I get, I'm really judgmental. My kids, they have so many medicines now with all these different flavorings. And we're really up a creek because we've got ibuprofen in like six flavors because the children keep changing their mind on what the best flavor is. It's medicine. It's not supposed to taste good. And then you say that and then they cry and Rachel looks at you. <laughs> medicine is not supposed to, to taste good. It's supposed to make you feel better, right? Shame. Hmm. Well, not shame, but humility of exposing yourself, again, not literally, to the people around you, letting them know who you are, it's bitter. But it makes you able to receive God's grace. You're letting go of your pride in order to take hold of Him. And that sounds great, but He makes clear in the rest of this why. It's hard to let go because of pride, but it's also hard to take hold of him because right here it says in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as a loss. Everything? Yeah, the, the, the works thing, I'm going to let go of that. But then he goes further and he says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order, all things rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection 
and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Why is it so hard to let go of the one? Well, pride. But why is it so hard to grab hold of him? Because he says, if you're going to grab hold of him, you've got to let go of everything else. He says, if you're going to grab hold of him, you have to join him all the way, even in suffering. And we don't want to do that. Right here is joy, but it's joy that comes through a lot of hard stuff. Here's how I want to help you see this. It's how I understand this. Jesus talks about it in his own ministry when he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the same thing Paul's saying. All things rubbish that I might have him, selling everything you have that you might get him. That's hard. Why would you want to do it? Well, I think marriage is a helpful uh, a helpful illustration. I, I had friends over this past week. One guy was looking through a book on my shelf, and a, a picture fell out of the book. And it was a picture of Rachel and I when we got engaged. And our, like, engagement story is not, you know, some phenomenal, incredible thing. It wasn't movie-worthy, but it was nice, and we enjoyed it. My goal, she knew, broadly speaking, that we were headed towards marriage, but she didn't know when this engagement moment was going to happen. And my goal was to surprise her. And I succeeded a little too well. We can talk about that another time. But the way in which I proposed to my wife, I took her to the church that we were going to at the time. And we climbed up. I had connections. No big deal. But I had access. So we climbed up to the top of the church. We sat up on the roof and we watched the sunset this one evening. Just a random day. It was just like a Thursday or something. And while we're doing that, the whole point of it was not sunsets, because who cares about that view? I mean, it wasn't that incredible. The whole point of it, though, was to get her in the building and to get her in a place where I could then have somebody like move stuff around within the, the main room at the church and set it up for the engagement moment. So we're up on the roof, and I know she has no idea. She's just chatting, and I'm just chatting with her, trying to keep her you know, oblivious because I want it to be a surprise. She just thinks we're sitting there, but I know that I'm about to ask a question that I can't like come back from. I know I'm about to jump off a cliff. And can I tell you, even me, with her, I was still a little bit unsure in that moment. If you were to ask me if I loved her, I'd say yes. If you were to ask me if she was greater than anybody I would ever marry, I'd say absolutely. Then if you say, okay, well, are you ready to marry her? There's still this moment of... Because in that moment, saying yes to her, or hopefully her saying yes to me, is me saying no to every other option and every other woman that's ever lived. In my head, I'm a very tall person. In my head, the woman I was going to marry was also going to be a very tall person. Not because she'd be like some supermodel or something, but because like, you know, big bones, salt of the earth, giant people. We would kind of tumble through life together and she'd be this big. In my head, she was this big like northern European woman. In my head, her name was <laughs> Helga, Olga. You get the idea. 
and that she would always have an apron and, you know, and we would have lots and lots of children and we would just be these giant people kind of tumbling through life. That's how I perceived my life, as little as I knew. And so in the moment of about to propose to Rachel, who's unbelievable, but not six foot, I had this, again, like this moment of like, I'm letting go of every Olga, every Helga, every... Every other idea I ever had about who I would marry. And this is real. This is real. Now, again, I didn't really have to think she's the best. And since we've wed, she is the great joy of my life. But still, in that moment, I realized I'm giving up everything else. Is it worth it? Yes. But do you understand the fear? I think so. You certainly understand it when we said it in a different context of Jesus. But that's what he's saying about himself. The picture of heaven in Christianity is not a Buddhist sort of non-being incorporated into this sort of full whatever. The concept of Christianity is not a heaven like Islam where you go to this very sensual place. And it's about you and your pleasures. The heaven of Christianity is Him. It really is Him. That's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, I'm letting go of all this other stuff that I may have Him, that I may know Him. It's all about Him, about having Him. I'm saying no to everything else in order to say yes to Him. It's terrifying. And the marriage vows help us to see this too. Because grabbing hold of him is not just grabbing hold of bliss. It's grabbing hold of suffering. Bookend in this picture in Paul is suffering. And in marriage, we talk about it. When you get married to somebody, at least, you know, in old days when people had like proper vows and not just like, you know, today where they just write their own like, Baby, <laughs> I promise to be yours forever. You know, however people do it today. In old days when they did it, you know, as it was written out, you would say, for richer or poorer. In sickness and in health. For better or worse. So it's all there. You get it. That's the picture. And he's saying that to be his, to be given him, to really have him, is going to be bumpy. But it's also going to be bliss. Don't let the fear of the bumpy stop you from grabbing hold of that bliss. Now, I mean, there's so many ways in which it's scary. One of the things that's scary is that you really are saying no to all these other pleasures. You're giving up. In order to get, but you're giving up. Chesterton's really helpful here. The eminently quotable G.K. Chesterton, he said, the more I considered Christianity, and he's, he's talking about the time before he was a Christian, back when he was an atheist, and the appeal of atheism for him was not just that he thought it was true, but also that it meant, hey, there's no rules. There's no God. Morality is just sort of a social contract. And so whatever I can get away with, I really do get away with. It was appealing. 
And yet, looking at Christianity, he's saying to himself, do I, don't I, should I, would I? And he's saying the more that he considered Christianity, the more that he found that while it did establish a rule and an order, there is right and wrong, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I can't be married to Rachel and also philander. It would destroy my marriage. If this is going to be good, it has to require me continually saying no. And I'll just be real. It's not like I'm getting constant options and propositions from women all over the world. Not a thing in my life. But there's a daily consistent yes to her and no to everything else. The rule of yes to her and no to everyone else allows our marriage and intimacy to flourish. He's saying the same thing. He's saying that that's what Jesus modeled for us when he leaves heaven to come and enjoy the comforts of earth, which are just non-existent compared with heaven. In the same way Moses says in Hebrews 11, when he's grown up, refused to call the sons of Pharaoh's, be called the, a son of Pharaoh's daughter, and choosing instead to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Would you rather live in the, the palace of Egypt with Pharaoh, enjoying all the pleasures of his table or go among the slaves, the Israelites, and be beaten with them and go live in a desert where you don't know where your food and water is coming from. For Moses, yes. For Christ, yes. For you, will you grab hold of him if it involves suffering? Jesus was willing when he stood with us to bear our burdens, to really feel them. It says at the tomb of Lazarus that Jesus bellowed. It's not what it says in English translation, but the Greek is very clear that he doesn't just weep. He actually feels there is a loud, passionate, angry sadness when Jesus looks at our death. To be a Christian is to feel that same thing for all your brothers and sisters. It says in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Ew. No. You're going to be a knucklehead. Do it in somebody else's time. I'm not going to go and try and put my life in your mess and help you slowly get better. No. Yes. He says in verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you understand why you don't have joy in your life? Because grabbing hold of him is grabbing hold of all this difficulty, all this messiness too. But if you will, you will find him. You will find joy. And I say all this and in your pride, you might be imagining that God is calling you today to sell everything. Well, maybe. Probably not. Little child, faint heart, he's probably going to give you something real small. It's going to be daily and it might increase, but he's probably just going to give you your next step of obedience. Are you willing to take it? He says about himself that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's going to be difficult, but grabbing hold of him, even with the suffering that might come with it, leads to joy. Will you? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we have big plans for Hope Church. And I think they are your plans, but of course, if they're not, I pray you kill them. But we plan on planting churches. We plan on seeing people raised up who will go out into the community and fight for the widow and plead for the orphan and and fight for justice and speak your gospel and be light and salt and bring the love of God that is not a popular message, a message that you are right, which means that things that conflict with you are wrong, Father, that will speak and preach and love. And if we're going to do that, Father, if we're going to experience that kind of um, activity, I pray, Lord, that it would only be as we understand the gospel more clearly, that we let go of pride and accomplishment. And instead, Father, we grab a hold of you, even if it means we have to give up all. We grab hold of you, even if it means, Father, that there's suffering in the way. And I pray that as we do, Lord, we would find you to set a feast before us in the presence of our enemies. Lord, we would find you to be gentle and lowly so that, Lord, we continue and we can, we can preach and pray and, and try and draw other people into that same walk for your glory. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.